الهو So, Nicholas Bornois, again of Capital Inc., I would like to welcome you all to uh, another extremely interesting session. Uh, this one will be on uh, the sales and purchase and new building markets and the impact of technology, finance, and regulation. Fleet maintenance and fleet renewal are the ongoing and one of the most important topics any ship owner is facing. And I am delighted and privileged to have with us such uh, uh, a group of uh, distinguished panelists. So without any more delay, I will turn it over to Nicholas Brown from uh, Bureau Veritas and he will introduce our uh, panelists. Again, thank you to all for joining and for your support. Okay, Nicholas, thank you very much. Great to see you again. Thanks for inviting um, us all to be here today. Um, so good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. My name is Nick Brown. I work in the Marine and Offshore Division of Bureau Veritas and I'll be helping moderate this session. Hopefully you'll hear a lot, well, not too much from me. So as Nicholas says, this session's about the sale and purchase and new building markets and the impact of technology, finance, and regulation. We've heard earlier today in this forum about the impacts of technology, finance, and regulation. So how do, how will the freight rates of today's shipping markets impact ship operations, fleet maintenance, and fleet renewal? different markets of different dynamics. And when you look at earnings for crude oil tankers, the charts look like they're mapping the ups and downs of a very bouncy rubber ball that's completely run out of energy and is rolling along the floor. VLCC average daily earnings, I read from one ship broker's weekly report today from Middle East Gulf, China, revived last week, week on week, by 45% from $65 a day to $91 a day. Yes, 91 individual dollars. In 2020, average earnings were over $50,000 a day. So although asset values remain robust, is that in misplaced hope or educated expectation? Meanwhile, bulk, bulk carriers have been going the other way, earnings moving from new peak to new peak, but it's container rates that have really been a liftoff. And so we've seen values rising there considerably. Um, and as your Capital Link Agenda program says, a greener industry is a one-way road, but how do companies navigate the uncertainty of fuel types and infrastructure? Rapid enough technological developments and new regulatory requirements. So the panel will provide the viewpoint of major stakeholders from different angles, some ship brokers, a ship owner, a technology provider, and a classification society. What's going on? Decisions being made now and the outlook today will shape tomorrow's shipping world. Well, we've got a great panel from all those perspectives who are gonna tell us. On our panel, we've got two ship brokers, Richard Fulford-Smith from Affinity, Mr. James Gundy, of Braemar. Our ship owner is Mrs. Lewis Zabrocki, the president and CEO of International Seaways. And we have from classification, Mr. Paolo Maretti, CEO of Rena Services, and Mr. Andrea Morganti, vice president, Marine Power and Strategy for Bartsela. Um, great to see you all. Um, can I start with the shipbrokers? James, can you please tell us what's happening and what's going to happen in the sale and purchase and new building markets? in the days, weeks, and years to come. You're on mute, James. There Sorry. we go. Sorry about that. Okay, first of all, I want to say thank you for inviting me on the panel today. It's a very appreciative talk. 
That's a brain mark. Um, look, obviously, you, you alluded there, you know, the first aspect was the fact that there's a huge disparity with the various markets today. That's obviously not the first time that's happened. And I think that, you know, from where we were back in 2006, 2008, you could see at the time most markets were definitely at a firm peak. Now we're starting to see a massive movement from last year where the tanker market was obviously with the oil going into a negative price to market and contango movement, it was definitely in the right way. But now, I think from my perspective, looking at it, I think the, the most important factor for any kind of ship owner is just to, to, uh, to look to, um, strategically look to where prices are. And I think you said earlier, obviously buying at the right time and being brave at the bottom as opposed to you know, moving at the very top of the market, which obviously can cause uncertainty. And in today's world, there's so much uncertainty going forward with today's new, you know, potential aspects of fuel, which we discuss, which we will discuss later on. I'll leave the experts discuss that. But I mean, technology is huge. And from our, from where we're seeing that, they're slightly unsure. But I, you know, for me personally, I think it's difficult to really align what is the right move on, on, on fuel because a lot of it, I'm not saying it's here, saying I know why we need to go down this avenue because of ESG, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But from my perspective, you know, I think that there should be some, the, the main key factor to reduce ESG in the early part is probably slow steaming and potentially taxation on bunkers and obviously using the cleaner engine and early in the economical engines going forward. Now, we know that we can move into the aspect of dual fuel, which has been the recent conversation. The problem, as I mentioned before, is the fact that that is a higher cost factor than over, above, than over and above of conventional engines. And that, at the moment, is hard to pass on so to either the, to the receiver or to the producer. So that's obviously an issue to be discussed today, I believe, because, as I said before, to lowest the fact is that Unless there's some fixed contracts on maybe dual fuel, it's a big gamble to take these early decisions on jumping in there for a spot basis, especially when you look at the situation of present spot market in tankers, which is obviously, as you just said, exceptionally low. So I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that you can see this graph move up and down on various different sectors. And it's amazing. One minute you see 9,000, you see 200,000 on containers. It just shows it's a very bumpy road in shipping. It's a supply and demand basis. Does okay, that? Thank you. No, that's great, James. Thanks for, for getting us started there. And uh, so you're not anticipating an end to the extreme cyclicality of shipping? No, I'm not. I think that's going to be something that's happened. It's happened for many decades. It's going to continue happening for sure. But I think the, the world is evolving in many places, in many areas, which makes shipping exciting. And of course, there's full of surprises. I mean, you can many movements and swings in markets are not necessarily predicted by an analyst. It's certain things that happen that none of us can sit here and say would have happened or hadn't happened. And that's whether you're the right side of the market at the right time. Many people can sit here and say they caught the market on the right by luck, as opposed to what they were thinking at the time. So, yeah. Okay. So. okay. Thank you, James. Uh, Richard, can we go to you? Yeah, how do you see things? Hopefully, I'm. Um, uh, yeah. Hey, listen. Thanks very much indeed again for inviting me on, and 
I've done a few of these pounds before. This is an easier one than normally because what we love to do in shipping is to be ridiculously over-optimistic at all times. Don't we, Lois? And, you know, if you're in a bad place, which the tanker market is at the moment, you need a lot of optimism to invest there. But you also, as James says, need to understand that we, we, we have cycles and we overshoot at the top, we overshoot on the bottom. At the end of the day, investors are looking to get a return out of shipping and they'll select whichever sector they actually believe in based upon their ability to function within that. We have areas of industrial shipping, which traditional ship owners will find difficult to get involved in. The liner companies dominating the container market. That's been the market that has sponsored so much immense demand in the shipbuilding uh, industry. Shipbuilding at the top end and all the way through determines the cost of replacing ships. And people actually buy ships based upon the psychology of where they are in the market cycle. And we believe that we're actually on a low point in most of the markets uh, right now, or rather we were. We were when we were going into 2020 and what happened with COVID. COVID kind of interrupted the normal flow. It created a totally artificial market in the tankers, uh, which sponsored a lot of interest in building ships in the second half of last year. We had the exact opposite in the gas market. It was, uh, it was cratered and we had very little, uh, we had very little demand for new ships. We then had this container boom and that sucked the life out of the shipbuilding market for all the competing sector. Because guess what? If you're an owner of tankers and you're suffering immensely, the last thing you want to be told by somebody like me or James is, by the way, you're going to have to pay 20, 30 percent more than you thought you would have had to have done a year ago. The liner business can afford to pick up the bills. They can afford to go down the only route which is genuinely fundable. Uh, in the banking community, which has largely gone missing. The best time to buy ships is when the banks have gone missing. They've gone missing. Well, that's because shipping was a high-risk business. Now, psychologically, we're in a good place. We're talking about the super cycle. It's much of your theme. I do believe that we are in a crisis. We don't have enough shipbuilding capacity. I'm not the first person to say that. Fleet replacement will drag the prices of other vessels up. Whether anybody can help the tanker market, I'll let Lois describe because she's very committed to that. But uh, no, I'm sorry to say it, chaps, but uh, I think the die has been well cast. I'm not going to talk about the dual fuel because you asked me not to beyond saying the LNG market looks pretty bloody exciting to me. And look at the commodity price. Demand is robust. We need to be taking FID. One thing I will say, there's an awful lot of legislation being talked about at the moment uh, that actually people sanction certain segments of our industry. I wonder really where it's going to be policed because it's all fine and well to introduce, including EU ETS, on the 14th of July, which I think was a landmark part of what we're talking about going forward in the future. But who's going to police all this? Will ships be taken out of certain trades because they can go and hide elsewhere? Well, that's not going to address the, um, uh, the unbalances that exist, for example, in the tanker market, where we're overdue to scrap a large amount of fleets, half of which disappear into a Dubai-based company and operate as a ghost ship, which artificially brings the tanker market into more difficulty on the big ships. So. That's what I have to say. Psychology looks pretty good in certain sectors, looks horrible when you're carrying hydrocarbons that are not popular, but we can't all hug trees and we can't all bow to Greta's uh, better, bigger, better and bigger demands for shipping. Richard, that's fantastic. Um, another great start. Um, so we've heard from the ship brokers, 
Uh, we'll hear more from them, I hope. Uh, Andrea, can I go to you and just ask you, um, as a technology provider, you know, you're very focused on new engines, new fuels, propulsion systems. How, how are you seeing your opportunities uh, and the implications of what's going on in the new building markets for your business? Yeah, thank you for the question and thank you for having me. I'm, I'd say I'm humbled to be part of this panel. Um, the, from a technology perspective, maybe we should start by saying that that's not really what is holding back uh, decarbonization. Uh, it's a uh, technology already exists today to drastically reduce emissions. Um, we, we started talking about, uh, I think we verified biomethane and synthetic methane in 2003. 2015, we did the first methanol conversion. We, have, we are far into testing of ammonia and hydrogen as we speak. So it, it's not really, um, I think it, it's exciting to see that uh, we are trying to look at, at uh, evolving, moving from a single fuel to multi-fuel, but um, technology to do that is, is here. And per, what we are actually seeing now is uh, two, two things. On one hand, uh, working with customers, understanding also what is the availability of these fuels. I mean, I think the issue is not really on, on uh, the downstream, is, is upstream. And uh, for this reason, uh, when we talk about uh, moving to zero uh, emission vessels, uh, often the, more, the projects that, uh, that move fastest are captive projects that are their own, the whole entire ecosystem included. And those are good projects to, to test the technology, to also give, to bring, to, to, to build up uh, references, to, build, uh, to give more certainty to customers want to build. Um, another, another path we are following is uh, working with customers and looking at, the, at, the, at their fleet and based on the age of the vessel and uh, characteristics of the vessel, see what kind of technology makes most sense to cope with the new regulations. So it might not be in some, some cases actually to go to uh, you know, a full uh, fuel conversion it can be that uh, something else that just reduces the, uh, the carbon footprint, energy saving devices and, and so forth. Um, or when planning on new builds, uh, working together in, 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 uh, in um, you know, guaranteeing a path, an upgradable path. Because if you're building today, uh, of course, today you have the fuels you can get today. But you can do, you can take measures to make sure that uh, you, you could switch later on and that, um, during the lifetime of the vessel to a different fuel, minimizing the impact of that. Uh, this is, I would say, these are, these are the key factors. On the regulation side, uh, of course, we are monitoring and participating in the discussions. To me, what is interesting is that we, have, we are used to look at the IMO as the, 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 the key part and the key you know, regulating body. But what the EU showed uh, in July is that um, that's not necessarily the case. If IMO doesn't succeed in, in moving fast enough, then you end up having packages like the EU Fit for 55. Maybe it will take two years to, to become low. But... Uh, there are four different, the package covers many industries, but there are four different uh, directives there that have a direct impact on, on, on the maritime. And, and among which you have, you know, the EU defined its own way of calculating greenhouse gases. So from, from, a, from a, you know, ship owner perspective, what do you look at? Is, is you have the IMO way, then you have the EU way, maybe then there will be US way and the China way. Um, um, so it, there is a, the other thing is that, of course, a, a regulator like you looks at, um, uh, you know, well to, to wake, 
not tanked awake. So maybe even, even the perspective on the fuel you might be using is different. So all of this is, is um, I mean, I like to look at it as exciting. I mean, there is clearly a lot, uh, the, the moment, this is building momentum, but at the same time, um, uh, I think regulators need to come together. And, and uh, we have to hope that there's gonna be an international alignment, otherwise it will be very, very difficult uh, to take decisions for these vessels that are supposed to, inter to trade internationally. Andrea, that, that's great. And, and what I'm hearing there partly at the end is, is the need for the shipping industry to be able to talk to stakeholders beyond the business. I mean, we're great at talking amongst ourselves, but there's a sort of theme of collaboration, which maybe has been, you know, poorly described in how that actually happens that's going to be needed now. Um, thank you. Uh, Paolo, can we, can we take you next? Uh, you know, partly in response to what Andrea is saying, how, how do you see that landscape now and, and you know, particularly maybe that element of regulatory overlap that's going to you know, complicate our lives at, at, at the very least. Unique. Hi, everybody. And thank you for having invited me in this very exciting panel. I think I can uh, subscribe and uh, agree on what Andrea has mentioned before. Uh, we cannot wait, waste time uh, or uh, hope that uh, some regulation uh, will allow us to cut corners because immediately the day after we will have local regulation, as we have seen, that will come up and say, okay, if uh, IMO is slowing down a little bit, then we will have EU that will play its role. I think that uh, here we, we are talking of uh, short-term, medium-term and long-term measures. The, the long-term measures uh, that are up to 2050, the 50% the reduction in the greenhouse gases and uh, Within the century, the possibility to arrive into zero greenhouse gases emissions uh, is something that we have to accept. It's something where we will have to arrive for sure. What I think is, uh, is to be clear is that at the moment, we don't have the solution that is fit for all. We have to accept the fact that uh, we have to make research in all, keeping all the option valid. When I say all, uh, uh, even sounding unpopular uh, in these days, they are coming back with the nuclear in various industry. I think that also that one we should keep alive. We should keep alive uh, producing uh, hydrogen or ammonia with, uh, uh, in a blue way with the carbon capture or in the green way with, uh, with the renewables. Um, what is important uh, is that uh, we are not in the driving seat as marine. I mean, we will not decide ourselves what is the fuel that will go on board uh, in 2050 because we have to understand, as usual, what is going on in the in a wider landscape of, uh, of other industries. And, and so I think what is important for the long-term strategy for classification societies and companies like, uh, like RINA uh, is really to try to remain involved in uh, all the projects in cross-industries. For example, we are working in, on the trains. We have trains now that uh, they had the problems of, uh, uh, let's say, leaving the, uh, the fossil fuel and instead of going to electricity in Italy now they are running with hydrogen. So uh, we are having examples of uh, big pressure vessel built uh, in iconic mountain area to, uh, to at the end uh, uh, give the logistic for train that uh, will produce only water because they, they will go with the, with the fuel cell and, uh, and hydrogen. We, we are seeing uh, the use of uh, hydrogen together with LNG to reduce the emission in the, in the steel production. So I think that we have to maintain these uh, strong uh, 
engineering competencies in understanding and trying to do some cross-fertilization with all the other industries. But of course, uh, 2050 is far away. Now we have uh, the immediate problems, the immediate problems that of course, for what are the so-called uh, short-term measures that to me are the EXI and the CII, uh, will probably go in the direction of changing uh, the, the operational profile, doing some uh, derating of, uh, of existing ship uh, uh, power, and at the end, reducing speed. Uh, but what if we want to order a new ship now that is ready for 2030? So the so-called mid-term measures. Now an owner who has to invest, uh, he has somehow to feel confident uh, that uh, he's putting his money in something that will not lose his value in, uh, in seven, eight, uh, uh, ten years' time. So I think this is one of the, of the key um, requirements now. And uh, again, it's gonna be a mixture of uh, operational saving new solution to, to change uh, the, uh, the consumption profile of the vessel. But uh, to me, this is my, my personal view as, uh, as Rina. I, I also think that uh, we have done in these years uh, some investments, for example, in LNG. LNG has always been defined as the so-called transition uh, fuel. I think it's still uh, a bridge fuel, this one. I think that, for example, if uh, you are going to, to place an order for a ship uh, that is uh, uh, fueled with LNG now, then the ship uh, could be uh, retrofitted and be used uh, with uh, a synthetic methane in the future, or even a, a mixture of uh, LNG and hydrogen, or, or even in the future only, only hydrogen. So I think that for what are the, the mid-term measures, uh, I would, uh, that, that is the immediate necessity of ordering uh, ships for those owners who can afford this. This is not only uh, the only solution, but for example, still uh, keeping an eye uh, to the LNG as, a, uh, let's say, primary uh, fossil fuel for this transition is an option. And maybe also change some paradigm that we have always given as uh, uh, something that cannot uh, uh, be changed in the maritime business. So, for example, with Barcelona now we are studying the possibility of, uh, of changing the, the, the typical design of bulkers and, uh, and tankers that are typically running with two strokes main engine and three diesel generators to a new configurations with uh, uh, two uh, main engines, one bigger and one smaller, uh, four strokes uh, with uh, uh, control of the speed propeller and only one generator in standby, shock generators and batteries. So I think uh, we should uh, um, make uh, some review of uh, the existing design coupled with the possibility of running the vessel with LNG, you will probably have more guarantee and more, uh, and being more, let's say, uh, somehow protected uh, from, uh, from the future change. Thank you. Hello, that's super. M many thanks. That's a really broad review. And, uh, you know, I like the, the framing of the short, medium and long term. Now, finally, Lois, um, having heard all that from uh, our four men on the panel, um, and you're the ship owner, you know, do you feel like you're in the driving seat and, you know, what are the, the short, medium and long-term options to you, you know, with hundreds of millions of dollars of tankers uh, in your fleet and maybe hundreds of millions of dollars more to be ordered, what, what's the future? Well, you know, I would say, Nick, uh, being in the driver's seat, I don't, I, I feel owners are rarely in the driver's seat, in fact. Um, you know, we have so many constituents that need to be satisfied. One of the things I think that's great about this panel today is that it demonstrates, you know, to me, the brokers are, you know, really where 
the rubber meets the road a little bit in our business because they are talking to classification societies. They are talking to the yards, they're talking to the engineers and they're seeing what is possible and what is coming to be possible. And then, you know, they're putting, you know, all of that together with us as owners and bringing into that, you know, Andrea is talking about some of these technologies are, are ready. However, what are the, you know, um, availability and what is the steady supply of those materials and are they toxic and how will they be handled? And all of this has to get rolled into, uh, you know, the practicality of running a fleet. So I, I also like, and it's a bit how I think about the fleet, the short, the medium, the long-term. In the short term, every time we're putting a ship into dock on some of our, you know, I don't think they're, you know, we build ships for 25 years, but okay, some of our older vessels at 14, you know, we're we're putting on the slick paint. We're, you know, optimizing the Mavis ducks. You know, you're you're taking every measure that you can to that vessel to improve, you know, if it's five percent, you know. You're, you're improving, you know, looking to improve that vessel's ability to compete and to lower their emissions. And then when you move all the way through to the longer term, we are building three LCCs at Daewoo that are dual fuel and they, they have the high speed engines, right? So you're going to the lower methane slip, but you see this constant improvement um, previously the, the lower speed engines that have more methane slip were, were the uh, derigger, right? So, you know, you have to constantly now be kept up on the latest technology. But one thing uh, at the moment, and I don't know that this will be a long-term trend, at the moment, LNG is quite pricey. So it's not just the CapEx, which was referenced earlier. So, you know, we were lucky uh, with Shell's timing, putting the orders in at 96 million uh, at the end of 2020. Same ship today. Um, I don't know, Richard, what do you think? 110? 100 and probably 112 to 115, depending on the size of your bunker tanks, uh, Lois. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a piece of the puzzle is the CapEx up front. However, even though LNG is more energy dense than conventional fuels, if you look at the pricing today, if you're running on LNG, it will actually be more expensive. Now, we're in a, a very um, distressed place on tankers at the moment, but if you want owners to go out and order dual fuel vessels naked without charters, that becomes a big factor in how they're thinking about things. So the, the moment we're at to me is it's, it's taking us from commodity into engineers shine because they have that technical capability. The brokers are out there talking to all the yards and what they can do. And all of this is, is gonna come together. And I don't know that there's, going to be only one solution um, because 
you know, if you want to go ammonia, that can be super. Um, but like I said, you have to secure your chain, right? So Shell, being a massive gas owner, just contracted for a bunker barge that can do LNG. And they will do that around the world so that they can ensure that these dual fuel LNG vessels can be bunkered in normal trading routes. So th there's, there's a lot of complexity and pieces that, that all have to come together, I think. And, you know, but as a ship owner, we're definitely not the boss of this. We are just dedicating a lot more time and learning to, okay, what's gonna be the breakout fuel? How practical is it? When's it gonna be available? Um, and, and then, you know, making sure you optimize your fleet in the meantime. And the one thing I said that you said, Richard, let us never, ever, ever leave our lips again that there's not enough shipbuilding capacity. Because I learned in 2007 and 2008, um, I, I, I think we got schooled pretty good in uh, shipbuilding capacity. What do you think, Richard? I'll tell you what I think, Lois. I think we haven't got enough shipbuilding capacity today, but tomorrow I wouldn't be surprised to see an awful lot more coming back because that's the cycle of shipbuilding. Shipbuilding cycles and shipping cycles, I'm, I'm afraid to say, are going to continue to ensure that we're oversupplied in certain markets where people get over-enthusiastic and not. But can I just say to you, Lois, I think the most important thing is that we have to be the bridge in a certain way between all the theories that are out yeah. there at the moment. And we actually have to address what is a major crisis for shipping at the moment. And that is very much down to COVID and the uncertainties. But Lois, you've got a commitment to a tanker industry, which is struggling. And I yeah. feel for you in that because the way your business model works, other people have the ability to be in different legs and we talk in ship brokers about, you know, having a terrible tanker broking market at the moment. But thank God we got a bit of dry and a bit of gas and a bit of this. What do you think about being um, like like we we could have been if we'd been a very specialist company? You know, it really, really is very tough for a VLCC owner and Suez Max owner where you've got such a huge imbalance. Ton mile demand is actually so weakened at the moment by COVID. Are you tempted to look at maybe looking at my very expensive gas? Because that's what I've been trying to get you to do for a decade. I know, I know, <laughs> I, know. I know. I know you have, Richard. And, and you know what's interesting as a publicly traded company, and you know, um, it was uh, all the sexy thing for some time, uh, largely driven by investment bankers. You know, you could only be crude or it could only be product. I mean, I, I hate to tell everyone, um, we are diversified, we have crude and product. They are very linked because the crude is carried to a refinery where it is then refined and then moved. And so those two markets um, feed one another. As we now coming out of COVID or, you know, I guess perhaps if we're not out, coming out of it, we're at least seeing the world start to reopen. When the refinery margins start to increase, you start to see a pull on the crude, right? So, you know, yeah, we're crude in products. Uh, the smaller ships have fared better relatively. Uh, still, uh, you know, nothing, you know, I mean, if you, if you get to $10,000 a day, it's a good day. You know, we do have our, uh, I call it our gem hidden in plain sight, our FSO um, that 
pitches $10, $12 million to Seaways after we've paid a mortgage. And then next year, it'll be $22 million when she starts a new contract. But yes, Richard, I mean, we do look at that LNG market. To your point, you know, that is a $200 million ticket entry market. So it, it, is, um, it is definitely hugely uh, capital intensive. And, you know, I look at I look at all the different markets. We look at the LPG. We look at, you know, the LNG. Don't look too much at dry, even though dry is, you know, doing wonderful. Um, you know, but we look at all these different markets um, all the time. And what I would say is we've been very focused on rebuilding our fleet, you know, over the last five years and make putting ourselves in fighting shape again on the tanker stage. So that's been our primary, um, our primary capital focus, right? We spent over a billion dollars on um, new ships, on secondhand purchases, on um, the Diamond S merger. That, that's really interesting to hear. James, can, can, I, can I bring you in there? I mean, that question of diversification that Richard's put to Lois, are you, no, I, I, are you, are you seeing many owners who, who are looking at that? I think, first of all, go back to what Richard said. I think that, you know, what did, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but we've probably seen around 20% capacity reduced since 2008. What I've learned on many, many trips to Korea is that that I don't really believe when it gets to his level of uh, a government level within someone like Korea, that they would actually allow for such massive swings. And I think that the 2008 aftermath was definitely a major issue for the country's GDP. So there is that potential learning curve. I know that Richard's saying is that it's a short learning curve and we could go back to where we were again. But I think there has been a big reduction of capacity I do think that what saves a lot of markets is probably the overbuilding in 2006, 7, 8 on dry cargo. We're now seeing the capacity get back to where it was again after all these years. I think tankers potentially, you know, I know that, that, that uh, Richard mentioned to Dubai-based companies, but apart from that, we were seeing a lot of uh, ships going, the present strength of the present scrap recycling market as it is today. We would see a more of a balanced market. And I think, obviously, the prices at the present yard have, yes, I guess, a conventional ship of VLCC today, you could even argue is as much as 105 million at today's yard for delivery in 2023, 24. But that's because of more because of raw materials, et cetera, has pushed that price. But that's definitely going to keep buyers away at those levels, which means there's a correction down the line as we start seeing OPEC gradually drip feeding here. And, and as and said about COVID, you know, obviously that moving away as the world gets back to more stability. So I think it makes I think that's making it so interesting that there's normally some market that comes that comes through. If we were sitting here and every market was flat, I guess we would be sitting here starting to get a little bit worried as for everyone around this on this panel. But the good thing is I take I take positiveness, even though the tanker market in my background is more tankers being where it is today, but where the other present markets are, because you can feel that you would, you know, there's always a storm when we come out of that storm and the tanks will come back through. As will dry, will slip back or, or containers. It's all part of the, it's all part of the business, which makes it, which makes it so, so fascinating and it makes it very hard to believe it. But going back to the original question, 
which is about where we are on fuels. I mean, I don't know where this conversation can go. You start from where is shipping has a, shipping has a you know an element of how we can reduce ESG, but the fact is, where are we trying to reduce it from the the bunker tank, or are we taking it from the world? Because we know there's a lot of carbon extracted from fuels, and what is the right what's the right on on the fuel basis there? So there's there's obviously lots of lots of conversation regarding that, but the fact is, we've obviously got to. Yeah, we have to sort of uh, move forward in that respect as well. Okay, thanks, James. I mean, Paolo and Andrea, you know, what do you think when you listen to this conversation for your businesses going forward, supporting the sale and purchase and, and new building markets, essentially? Andrea? It's, um, it was actually a very interesting debate to hear. It's, it's if, I, if I start from, the, from actually the last uh, point that James made on, on um, you know, looking at what is the actual carbon footprint of, of, of fuels. And um, I think that the, I, I don't believe in, in a sudden change. I, I believe that this will happen uh, segment by segment. The closer the segment to, uh, for instance, companies that have, deal with consumer goods or companies that have made uh, public ESG uh, commitments. Uh, so companies are prepared to pay a premium. Uh, that will initiate the... Uh, potential development of, of uh, uh, tiered freight market where you know you prepare to pay a premium because you get something out of it because you you can place your product differently. So I would assume that's the way I personally believe that's the way this is going to come in and it also will, will come, on, come in gradually. I mean um, uh, on one end the fact that this will happen gradually will also solves the problem of the availability of the fuel. Uh, there is no doubt that fuel will this green fuel, so-called, will, will be available in small amounts in the beginning. And as also, as Paolo mentioned, we cannot think of maritime being the place where this is sorted out. I mean, it will be sorted out on land by other industries who need those fuels. Some of these fuels actually are, we call them fuels for other industries. They are chemical compounds essential for their, for their own final product. If you take ammonia, it's, it's a key for fertilizers. So I think there will be teaming up between, between industries there uh, to, to reduce the cost of, of, um, of these fuels um, and, and guarantee offtake from the production plants. Um, another element uh, which is it's key to sort out the problem is, is uh, availability of biofuels. Biomethane, for instance, and, um, and ramp up the, that kind of production. Uh, now the issue with this is that if you any industry you pick any heavy heavy duty industry you pick they're all going for this, so the question is will will be available for for maritime in the end, uh, and I've not seen legislation securing that. So legislation is asking for this to happen, but it's 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 not maybe giving a preferential uh, route to to, my, to to maritime to access it. Okay, thank, thank you, Andrea. Uh, Paolo, any final thoughts? Well, I think that uh, at the end, we will definitely go for uh, a more uh, 360 degrees approach of the, of the fuel production, that, that's for sure, because already we see it uh, by the new EU taxonomy and so on. Uh, it's clear that uh, if, if, you, if you put, uh, let's suppose that tomorrow we are ready to go with hydrogen and fuel cells, but you put on board the gray hydrogen that is coming out uh, from industrial production. This is not making the case. So uh, what, what I'm, uh, I'm expecting for sure is that, and again, in this maybe uh, even EU uh, 
other industry will, uh, will give another, uh, uh, let's say, uh, supporting uh, decision uh, is uh, uh, to go not only on the ship itself, but uh, on the overall production of, uh, of the fuel. And of course, more and more the finance, uh, the ESG certification will also change a little bit. We are quite used to, to deal with prescriptive uh, schemes when we come also to this type of, uh, of, uh, of green certification, we will go more and more towards uh, bespoke certificates, uh, gold-based standards, uh, and necessity of a uh, uh, clear KPI definition. Okay, thank, thank you very much. So, I mean, Lois, just, just coming back to you as, as a ship owner, you know, in terms of what's next, um, the existing fleet, I mean, working hard on um, making it as efficient as possible. Um, I mean, that question of diversification, I, I, I guess is, you know, issues of, um, in the public markets and not giving away your strategy online. Um, but, you know, it, is, is that something that, you know, you think that the investors are going to drive you to look at? Well, you know, it's very interesting because we're in a, in a time of change and some investors are still very fixated, um, rightfully so, on simple shareholder returns. And then you have a group of investors that are willing to support um, more innovative investments. And I think that tanker companies, including our own, will increasingly invest in, you know, greener options, alternative fuels, you know, carbon, you know, all the brokers are ramping up with their carbon trading desk, you know, and, you know, all of these different areas for owners are available to a little bit of the wild west and we have to see how do we pivot and how do we make sure that in five years time we're still in the in the pack leading the pack in that hunt of um, as the world decarbonizes and we're moving energy how we compete in what is a really risky business a highly cyclical business likely to remain so um, James, Richard, any, any final thoughts in our final two and a half minutes? James, you want me to go first just to respond to Lois. Listen, the world of shipping is facing a significant challenge and it's called how do you manage your carbon tax? Because you guys are all going to be paying for every tonne of CO2 that you emit. And it's 3.2 for every tonne of fuel and it's 2.7 for every tonne of gas, more or less. Okay, so... At the moment, we have an immediate response, which is the transition fuel. I chose the LNG fuel as the transition fuel to try to get us to 2030, 2040, 2050, wherever it is. We see there's a huge amount of demand increase for that. It's not the longest term solution. Nuclear, I agree with whoever said that. Sorry, forgotten who said that. I think that's probably a long term solution. But let's be practical. We've got to actually get people to invest in shipping and believe in it. Let's actually be optimistic about the sectors that actually hold real prospects. We don't have any prospects in the tanker business unless we can find a way of solving the oversupply of tonnage. We do have a future in the container business at the moment, which may not look quite so bright in a year's time because that's a cyclical market. It's a short cycle. But there are lots of people who want to invest in shipping and actually get guided by the experts in the various different segments in which they are in. Right now, it's just difficult for guys in the tanker market. I feel very sorry for them. We've got a lot of tank brokers who would love it to be very different to where it is today. 
Let's be practical. There is a solution out there for every different type of ship. It's not the same one, but it sure as hell is going to rely on a lot of optimism from the people who are in the most difficulty and just a little bit of sanity for those people who are being tempted by huge returns. I'm talking to the container owners particularly. Martha stuff. Thank you very much indeed from me. Great, Richard. James, any final thoughts to, to take us to the end? No, I'm just, I'm just listening to Richard. That makes me smile in the way. Yeah, I can't, I can't really disagree with what he's trying to say there. Obviously, every ship owner has some sort of, uh, you know, they, they have to sort of move. We have to all move forward with the times. We have no, we have to, this time we have no choice. This is where we're going. We have to do this. The trouble is, is trying to pass that cost on somewhere. And the problem with shipping, it seems to get squeezed and squeezed and squeezed at every single point, which stops potential reinvestment into into new ideas and new and modern ships. That's that's the big that's the biggest problem. But I can feel I can feel on the container side there's some poor you know furniture man obviously <laughs> moving his products from east to west and he suddenly hasn't allowed for his shipping cost. His business has probably gone under. So you know it's just it's just the way. It is. But I, I can see. We're not really sure which way it's going to go yet as far as uh, which, which uh, fuel or which product is the right way. But I'm with Richard. The most, most, the most possible way is to make sure that we eventually find that factor going forward. So that will happen, I'm sure. All right. Well, so anyway, thank you, James. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Nicholas will come in in a minute, probably to officially thank you. But thank you, Paolo. Thank Absolutely. You, I, I'm, I'm right here. And Andrea, uh, I just James. want to say... Richard. As expected, it has been a great discussion. And uh, I mean, this is one of the topics that uh, ship owners face day in, day out. And thank you for a tremendous uh, panel. I'm so privileged to have you on board. Thank you to all. Thank you. Great to be thank with you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot.